I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. All right, so we're going to play it a bit loose this evening, but we'll begin with something formal. Um, and it'll be a bit of a game of role reversal. Uh, Sheila is going to read from Gideon's book, and Gideon is going to read from a piece of Sheila's writing. Which of you would like to go first? I'll go first. All right, go ahead. Okay, so this is um, from Gideon's book, A Sense of Direction, pages 18 and 19. Um, This is right at the beginning. He's in Berlin, escaping his life in New York. In Berlin, it seemed as though everything was up in the air at all hours. No possibility was foreclosed. The local custom was to commit to as little as possible, and by local custom, I do not mean German custom. If the 20th century had taught anybody anything at all, it was that Germans had lousy customs. Hence Berlin's appeal. There was no cultural arbitration. My colleagues in Paris had the futile errand of trying to resemble the French. Those in Beijing competed in the absurd contest of trying to understand China. In Tokyo or in London or in Moscow, your sunlit hours had to have some non-trivial relationship to the economy. Berlin was an experiment in total freedom from authority, an infinitely long weekend with your parents out of town. It felt like an anti-gravity chamber. The old crimes licensed you to ignore the claims of the past. The low cost of living licensed you to ignore the demands of the present. And the future was something that would happen when we moved back to New York where many of us would once more live in uncomfortable proximity to our actual parents and where people talked about real estate and restaurants. It was not that I did not like talking about restaurants. It's normal to like talking about restaurants. But in Berlin, when we talked about restaurants, it was the cheap kebab places. This was part of the ritual by which we acknowledged the aspects of our Berlin existence that differentiated us from our friends at home. We, and now I mean the people I came to love in Berlin, David Levine and Alex and Emily, often felt like survivors whose home planet had become glutted with condos bought by people who waited in line for cupcakes. And we congratulated ourselves and one another on having gotten out just in time. We rebelled against the authority of rent and cupcakes. In theory, this charted us to do whatever we pleased whenever we wanted. In practice, it meant we spent a lot of time wondering what we wanted to do and if we wanted to do anything at all. Or maybe that was just me. Part of my anti-regret crusade involved making sure I was always doing just what I felt like, which mostly meant keeping myself open for things that might come up, saying yes to whatever distraction happened along. It was an extremely active kind of passivity, and it went swimmingly at night when things were always coming up. There were gallery openings and bars and clubs, all elbowy with asymmetrical people, proving provocative until breakfast... The daytimes were another matter. Then it was less clear what the most vital and necessary and memorable experience available might be. 
I went to Berlin with a whole shelf of unread books, books like Middlemarch. But every time I sat down, hung over in a cafe at 11 a.m. with that copy of Middlemarch, the whole day open before me, I inevitably thought to myself, why move to Berlin to read Middlemarch? (laughs) I could read Middlemarch in San Francisco, though naturally I hadn't. The whole point of living in Berlin was being an agent in the world of total possibility. Was reading Middlemarch the thing I most desired to do in that particular hour? It wasn't easy to say. Ordinarily, I had to put the book down and go on a walk to think it over, to make sure I was maximizing the value of my experience. These often turned into some pretty long walks. When I got back to the neighborhood from my walks, I sat around the Turkish bakery with Alex, or I went with her to check out the newer galleries up in Wedding. When I was with Alex, I felt as though there was nothing else in the world I'd rather be doing. When she was busy, I went to see Wings of Desire. I've been meaning uh, to read Middle March too. The, well, the, the, the se- we just had this conversation. Yeah, we did. The secret climax of the book is when I parenthetically actually finished Middle March back in New York sometime later. I'm sorry if that was a spoiler. It, it, it's still <laughs> worth reading the book. You read it on your phone, didn't you? Uh, I read big chunks of it on my phone, and actually I had this. I like, would read it on my phone because it's a huge book to carry around. And I would read it on my phone on the subways, and then I was always playing this game where I had to find my place <laughs> in a physical copy. So I read like half of it on a physical copy and half on my phone. That's much more than any of you guys ever needed to know about <laughs> the mechanics of my ultimately reading Middlemarch. Um, so I am going to read from Sheila's piece in the newest N Plus One magazine. Um, The cover bills it as, How Should a Diary Be? And then inside it says, From My Diaries, 2006 to 2010. So roughly the period in which you were working on How Should a Person Be? In alphabetical order. Um, And what's particularly appealing about this is that at least part of one of Sheila's projects has to do with a crusade against um, artificial fictionality. And this is a nice uh, arrangement of sentences and phrases from her, I mean, maybe from their diaries. She claims they're from her diaries, but there are times where this feels a little bit uh, more structured than that. In any case, um, I think I'm just going to read through things that strike my fancy in this. I'll start from the beginning. A. A 5,000-word article. A bark worse than its bite. A beautiful soul, person, A big, bulky man walked past us in the road and made a hulkish yell and then punched the wall. A big email list. A book like a shopping mart. All the selections. A book that is a game. A budget will help you to know where to go. A certain. A certain kind of bore who has said all he is saying, said it all before, and expects to hear nothing new from you on the subject. A certain lack of self-centeredness, belief in one's own innate genius, and faith in hard work, long hours. Actually. Actually, he doesn't want to love you. Actually, he doesn't want you. Actually, he is looking around the world for another girl, and because of who he is, he will find one and be with her. Be. Be a woman. Be bald-faced and strange. Be confident. 
Be direct about the things you need that are reasonable requests, and apart from that, just enjoy him and enjoy your time together. Be firm, unemotional, gentle, and clear in annihilating them, and thereby reform yourself and your environment. Be here. Be impeccable with your word. Be miserable about the world. Be peaceful. Do little. Find the one good thing, the one solace in this moment, and hold on to it. Be very quiet, very humble, very grateful. Be worse than you were when you were younger. Allow that to be a fact that people around you will interact with less than common grace and decency. They will interrupt and disappoint one another, and they will not always act as they would want or as you would want in that good way. But love, but love can endure but love without compatibility is a constant pain. Do not, do not become like the pathologist thinking you've seen the insides of people and that the outside's prettier. Do not feel pressure from people who work at magazines. Do not introspect, do not squander it, do not take that trip with Lee. Figure out, figure out money, Figure out money transfer. <laughs> figure out the best way to go. Figure out where to build those shelves. <laughs> he had. He had a girlfriend in Florida who's 22. He's 32. He had a masculinity that I didn't at first see. He had a mother. She kicked him out. That's life. There is no other mother. He had been an engineer in the UAE, but in Toronto was reduced to waking at 2 in the morning and playing the stock market until 5 a.m. He had called and left messages late, that, late at night, the night after we kissed, and I didn't know what he had done that for. It made me scared. He had given me a beautiful mixtape. He had his head resting on my belly, his legs around my legs, and I had one hand on his head. He had met or had a long conversation with an old girlfriend of his. And this was something he didn't tell me about, or didn't tell me about until long after. I could do this all night. (laughs) (laughs) Do one more. I slept. I slept all day today. I slept and slept and slept. I slept in a bed with Jamie. I slept on the bed in the main room, and it was fine. So I remember in the winter of 2010-2011, I was in a rather dark mood permanently for months. <laughs> one of the brightest, uh, one of the brightest phenomena of those days, although you may not have realized it, was I would receive emails every couple of days from Japan, uh, from Gideon which turned out to be early drafts of, I guess, what's part three of A Sense of Direction. Um, these were, this was, you know, writing as it happened. And uh, I guess what I first want to ask you is, I, you know, they made me happy, but I hardly ever replied. <laughs> Luckily, there were about uh, maybe 50 other people on the list. None and, of them replied yeah. either. Okay. Um, <laughs> Well, that, you spoil part of the answer there. But uh, I just want to... Um, I'm wondering how you developed that technique and how... 
What are the different ways in which it uh, works for you? Because it definitely works. Oh, thanks. Um, I'm glad you were reading those emails. Yeah. The, um, it was never explicitly a technique. It began when I... So that after I leave Berlin, the, the book then travels to Spain where I walk the Camino de Santiago, which is this old... And people have generally heard of it. It's this old, uh, famous Catholic pilgrimage across northern Spain. It's been in practice for about a thousand years. And then for various complicated reasons over the last mostly 20 years, it's become very popular with a young secular crowd. And I ended up walking it on as a kind of lark with a friend of mine who had proposed it when he and I were both feeling at, at loose ends. And the idea of just waking up every morning and, and moving was very appealing to us. So about three days... He, he's also a writer, Tom. And, about, and from the, the subject of my second question. <laughs> well, so from the very first minute of this walk we were taking together... Um, we would stop and write things down. And it became obvious to me that he was actually stopping as just a pretext for taking a break, which I began to give him a hard time about. But we were, we were very competitive about our note-taking because each thought the other was secretly maybe getting more out of this experience than <laughs> we were, like, noticing more interesting things. And he would go to the bathroom at the cafe at lunch, and I would look at his notebook and, like, see what he had written down. But actually, I didn't really have to look at his notebook because... The way Tom works is that he would constantly announce what he was writing down. <laughs> At any rate, um, three days into the trip, we decided to stop for a day in Pamplona, partially because Tom's feet hurt. Um, I, I thought like, it was because he was really into Hemingway. Right. Um, no, I don't think he left the hotel uh-huh. for the whole day. I, um, and so... Partially because we had had this great sense of productivity, even though all we'd been doing for three days was walking west. Um, I woke up at five, like we'd been waking up, and I thought, like, I have to be productive today, and I'm not going to go just stroll around this town, because that seems like it would be totally pointless just to stroll on the day that I'm taking off from walking. Um, (laughs) So I went down to the business center, and I thought, well, you know, my mom probably wonders if I'm okay, and I've got all this great material, and... I'd really been feeling living in Berlin like there'd been like I'd been wanting to write and there were just I thought things would just naturally present themselves um, and that's not the way of the world and then I was there and I felt like oh well I have this good material I'll sit down and write just an email out to to my friends about what's going on and I think the first email was just to maybe ten or fifteen people like thirty five hundred words saying this is what the first three days um, have been like and. It was a great experience, and I realized this was the first time that I'd ever compo- like done the generative work of writing in an email box, and I realized like there was so much of the panic of the blank page wasn't there, because I just looked at the email box and thought, like, I know how to write an email. This is not a terrifying experience. It's not like having like the, the gaping Microsoft Word page. And I just started writing, and I realized that I wrote with a kind of unselfconsciousness and fluidity that... I didn't always write with when I opened Microsoft Word. And then I started to get funny replies from people, like, really right away. And it was it was a nice, immediate sort of feedback loop because people didn't feel like they were criticizing my writing. It wasn't like sending somebody a draft and saying, like, what do you think of the narrative arc of this piece? It was like, here's just these couple of days that we've done, and people would write back and be like, oh, it's so hysterical to hear about this. And people were interested in things that I didn't even necessarily realize that they'd be interested in. And... Then mostly Tom had to take a day off every three days <coughs> because he bought these new boots and he thought that 
two hours in a mall in Michigan was enough to break in a pair of boots. <laughs> and so he got these really disgusting blisters, like half of his foot was coming off. And plus, he was involved in this complicated romantic thing that required him to be on the phone for many hours every couple of days. So every couple of days, we'd stop, and like in order for me to feel like I was making use of that day, I would sit and just write all day. And, and it ha- this was June... And most of my friends were in New York, and in New York, not that much gets done in the summers, and people were sitting in these, like, over-air-conditioned midtown Manhattan offices, reading these emails and excitedly replying. So, there, like, there was something very stimulating about the, the feedback loop going on. But did you th- understand it to be a first draft of your book, though? No, no. Oh, oh, I had no—oh, it's funny. I had no idea that this was going to be a book. I thought it was gonna, maybe going to be a magazine piece, but I thought I was also just doing this for fun. And after I sent out the first email— one of my friends in Berlin wrote back to me like immediately because he was in the same time zone, like literally while I was still at the computer, um, and said, "This is going to be a book." And I wrote back and I was like, "Ralph, what are you talking about? Like, this is not going to be a book." And he was like, "No, no, no, this is going to be a book." And I think he was the first one who said like this might be a bigger project. Right. But it was they, once I was halfway through the Camino, like once I'd walked 250 miles. Um, I'd written maybe twenty or twenty-five thousand words at that point, and then I thought, like, oh, this really is part of a bigger project. Hmm. Well, both of you are involved in um, writing about friendship, Sheila. One thing I often read about your book is that uh, it's very rare to see friendship between women. Uh, written about or shown something that's often compared to now since it's come after you, the show Girls on HBO. Um, Gideon, your friendship with Tom is much chronicled in part two of your book, although uh, its originality is less commented on because we all know the buddy movie. Um, What are the sort of uh, the, the problems you encounter when writing about your friends, especially your friends who are also writers or artists, and uh, are you know what do you put in? What do you leave out? What do you worry about in terms of uh, cannibalizing the relationship? Well, she that's like, a, she it, that may be too offensive. This, so maybe you should talk first. Um, well, just to start, I'll say that people have talked about the female friendship, the depiction of female friendship, and I asked Margot a while ago, I was like, did we ever say those words to each other, female friendship? <laughs> like in the seven years we were talking about this book, and her answer was never. So I never thought about it as female friendship, it was just like Margot and Sheila, which is the characters in the book are named Sheila and Margot. Margot Williamson is one of my closest friends in real life, but the Sheila and Margot in the book are sort of like us, but not like us. It's not actually an autobiography. It's sort of between that and fiction. Um, that said, yeah, writing about your friendship and writing about somebody that you know. I'd never done that before until this book. And um, I wanted to be really ethical about it. So, uh, And I, I kind of had this feeling like if our friendship is destroyed um, by my writing this book, then the book will be a failure, no matter how what happens to the book in the world. So the whole process was just, I showed her a million drafts of the book. Um, you know, she had 
various things that she wanted changed, which really was strange to me. And I think you have this idea sometimes as a writer, like that your vision is the most important thing. But for me, the friendship was the most important thing. And I wanted that to be the art project. Like, how do you actually make art with your friends and not lose your friendship more than um, any other sort of stylistic experiment? Um, it, it was kind of like a life experiment. But um, but did you have negotiation? Would she be like, take this out, and you'd be like, let me make a case for why I want to keep this in? That happened a few times. There was like three things in the book that she particularly didn't like, and I think I changed two of them. Um, uh and I won't say what the t- what they were because it would be really rude. But um, I don't know. She had this idea like we have to be we have to be easier about representations of ourselves. So for her to be in the book was an art experiment of her own. She was like I have. She thought about herself. I have to get over my vanity. I have got to get over my sense of possessing my image. Um, and being in the book was a way to do that. So if she hadn't undergone the experiment with me for her own reasons I think it would have been a big mess and you and Tom and we should say Tom is one of the most famous he's not very well known here but he's one of the most famous writers in America he lives in a big house in Malibu Uh, every time he writes a magazine article it gets turned into a video game he's super rich and glamorous and incredibly handsome Um, but this the the Camino piece uh, which is now part two of your book started off as a collaborative project between you and Tom for a special issue of McSweeney's that came out as a newspaper and um, I I was surprised when I finally got the issue that there was really not very much written by Tom in it Um, (laughs) but uh, he's come out with many great books since then Uh, Well, Tom Tom and I had this plan where we were going to alternate our story we, were, we both had some pre-existing relationship with the literary magazine literary quarterly McSweeney's and the original idea as I remember it was that we were going to alternate days or chunks of days and I was going to narrate like week one and he would narrate week two and we would do this braided thing um, but then Tom didn't uh, Tom had a very hard time writing about the Camino. I think it was because I had sort of a fluid time writing about it. And Tom's an extremely generous guy. And I think he just sort of stepped to the side and said, like, clearly this means a lot more to you. I'm going to let you do this. I mean, I, I look at it as, like, a real act of, um, of grace on his part. Um, he was really great. He, re- he also read many drafts of it um, and was... Uh, in consistently good spirits about the teasing I put him through, he also asked me to change a cup, take out a couple of things, not all of which I really understood. But I think I deliberately, I, I did, I played this like mustache on the Mona Lisa game where like you deliberately put in some things that you know he's going to ask you to take out because then you like are starting like as, as a negotiating tactic, like you're starting like closer, closer really to his weird. door line. Cause you're like, it's really weird. Don't devilish. I didn't mean to say that on the record. Um, nobody tell Tom, but, uh, I took a couple of things out, but also, I mean, throughout this book, I was writing about, um, people who existed and continued to exist. And I didn't actually, I didn't think that much about their attitudes about things. I mean, I, I write, I think pretty generously about people, so I, I didn't. Well, one of the well, one of the most fascinating characters in the book is your father. Well, uh, he, and that's kind of an unavoidable topic. So why don't we talk about it right now? And we also had a conversation about a character in the book. Do you remember this about a woman? 
Yeah. That was very controversial whether you could put her in and how you could put her in. Yeah. Is this the woman that you're constantly emailing? Yeah. 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 It was like a love interest. A love interest, yeah. A distant love interest. Well, some I, actually, she's she, the one person in the book whose identity I... I'm, I wasn't going to get into this, but so, whose identity I sort of had to mask a little bit. But um, I, but I think that actually, I got um, I, strangely. I didn't really think that much about how people were going to react to their representation in the book. This friend of mine, Alix, that uh, that Sheila was writing about, who was one of my closest friends in Berlin and is still one of my closest friends. I think she did a really nice job immediately of dissociating herself from this character and being like, "I'm a person and." this is a character in a book and we kind of share some biographical details um, and then but the, there are other people that I sort of knew weren't going to mind um, my dad I just didn't really think about it at all because I'm not sure I would have been able to write this book um, well first of all I didn't realize until I had written two thirds of the book that it was going to be a book that was in part about my dad but second of all I just don't think I could have written anything about him if I'd actually thought he was going to read it um, so I just willfully blinded myself about um, about his reaction to it. And then I knew at a certain point that I was going to have to show it to him, obviously, because it was going to be published. Um, and the lawyers from my U.S. publisher said, well, like, if we're going to quote these emails from him, we kind of have to have permission. So I waited until the whole thing was done because I, I didn't want him to feel as though he was being invited to make changes. So I had to go to a, um, to a wedding in China Right about a month after, or actually not even a month, a couple of weeks after I'd finished the final edits with my U.S. editor, and I said to her, "You send this to my dad while I'm in China, and then I will be far away, and I won't have to think about his reaction, and um, that'll be a way for me to deal with this." And then I got, I flew back to a, another wedding. The following week, I flew back from from Shanghai to. Seattle, And I was immediately going to this tiny island off of Seattle where I knew there was not going to be any cell service or internet. And, like, right before I got into the ferry to this island, I got an email from my dad saying, like, basically, this was an extremely difficult experience for me to read this book. And his partner, whom I read about a little bit, had, like, grabbed it from the UPS guy and read it first <laughs> to warn him. And he talked about how he, like, grit his teeth and threw it But why was it so difficult for him? It strikes me that you're being coy a little with uh, our audience here oh, right. by not telling them oh, uh, right. what the issues were, it just in, in, a, in a general way. So my dad is a rabbi who came out of the closet when I was 19. And part, I, I didn't ever set out to write about this, actually. Um, and... But one of the things that came up as I was working on the book is that while I was on the walking across Spain, he and I were in touch for the first time in two years. He and I have had this complicated relationship. And then I'd written the Spain chapter without referring to him at all, and then I went to Japan and wrote the chapter there without referring to him at all. And then my U.S. editor said, and I thought I was basically done with the book at that point, my U.S. editor said, you know, Gideon, these things come in threes, and you did the Christian one, and you did the Buddhist one. Now maybe you do a Jewish one, and you, maybe... She was like, didn't you once offhandedly mention to me that your dad was a gay rabbi? <laughs> and I said, I don't remember saying that, but maybe. And so then she was like, well, maybe you want to 
take a trip with him because at that point the book had sort of become about pilgrimage as pretext and the, the different kinds of pretext that the idea of pilgrimage serves and I and it had seemed like a wonderful pretext for conversation so I thought okay well I'll, I'll, I'll figure out a way to take a trip with my dad in which we can have a lot of the conversations that we've never been honest or courageous enough with each other to have so then we took this trip and then uh, and I like he kind of knew it was for the book but he's not a stupid guy. Um, uh, one time, we like while I was working on the book, he had a Passover Seder at his house, and he had made up his own readings for the Seder, and he had passed them out for people to read. And my reading, I mean, pe- other people had like whole paragraphs of some nonsense, and then my reading was one line from Joan Didion that was <laughs> that was a writer is somebody who is always selling someone else out. <laughs> and that was when I thought, like, maybe he knows that I'm writing about it. Um, That's hilarious. Anyway. Um, so, Gideon, you are one of the premier magazine feature writers in America. Um, one problem you have is that you don't have a very specific beat, so sometimes editors don't know what to do with you. Sheila, you uh, have recently written, both you and Gideon are two of the young stars that have had the luck, the great luck to work with at the LRB. Um, and uh, Sheila, you wrote in the, your diary, never, do not feel <laughs> pressure to do what magazine <laughs> editors tell you. So I'm curious, uh, both of you have had a lot of experience working for magazines probably for about 15 years each now, and um, uh, well, I guess you're not as old as I am, so (laughs) maybe a little less but, um, and Sheila, you are also the uh, interviews editor of The Believer, so in a way you're attacking yourself there, sort of (laughs) but, um, I don't know, how I, how do you like what are the problems of writing for magazines since I, I don't know I kind of realized two things about writing for magazines one is your byline your name might be on it but the actual byline is the name of the magazine so if you're writing for National Geographic it's National Geographic that wrote the piece if you're writing for Vogue it's, Go- it's Vogue that wrote the piece if you're writing for the LRB it's the LRB that wrote the piece and I just did an interview for Glamour I've never really written for an American fashion magazine before and it's just like no matter what I try to do with the editor it sounds like Glamour like my first question is like okay so you know and I was like I was like I said could we take out the okay so you know uh, and they're like yeah yeah of course and then you know it comes back to me and I was like well, we didn't take out the okay so and they're like no well you know it's kind of Glamour style but if there's anything else you want changed just let us know and I was like well yeah, there's about, like, 40 things I need changed. Um, and so uh, it was, I was completely, it was ludicrous. I did this interview. They asked me to um, interview Lena Dunham, which I was like, oh, I don't know if I should. You know, I'm so associated with her already. This is kind of, I don't want any more association, although I love her work. I just don't love the association, the obsessive association. But then I found out that she asked that I do the interview. So I was like, well, okay, then in that case I'll do it. Maybe I can do a really intelligent interview with her, you know. Um, uh, Maybe it's, you know, it'll reach a lot of people. I can do something super smart. Um, But we end up talking about boys the whole time somehow in the edit. So so 
I think that it, you can't have your own voice in a magazine. It's always, to some degree, the magazine's voice more than yours. And the other thing I realize is that you know, there's all these magazines maybe a person feels like they would want to be in, but the most important thing is the editor that you're working with. So I would feel like I would follow an editor anywhere. It's the editor, the relationship with the editor is the thing that matters more than the, the magazine. Like Editors I, are so off. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to like overdo it, but like I, like I love writing for you and I, it's an, it's a relationship, you know, and that's sort of, um, that's, that's nice to have. And, uh, and if you can find like three editors that you have a great relationship with, you have a, at least for me, a satisfying life writing for magazines. I've, I found one. <laughs> um, I guess Sheila and I have a, a somewhat, have to, by circumstance, have to have, or by necessity, have to have a different take on this because Sheila is primarily self-identified as a fiction writer and I'm not. So I, and I pay my rent f- by writing for magazines. And so when I'm in my best moods and a version of my best self, the the way that I look at it is um, that working for yeah, I mean Sheila's right that whenever you're writing for a magazine, like you're ultimately for hot, like you are a hired gun, and so my attitude about that has been like, how can we look at like writing for this magazine as a form of Ulipian constraint, such that it feels more like a generative device than a stifling limitation. Like, how can I do... How can I get a piece through at, like, T Magazine, which is this incredibly uh, vacuous New York Times-style magazine? Um, uh, And I say that confidently only because I know the editor I worked with was recently fired. Um, (laughs) And so... So to me, the feeling, I mean, I'm not always that good at doing this, of course. I'm Like, today, I had an exchange with an editor, one of, like, the basically two editors along with Christian that I really feel like things, good things come out of, um, who wrote to me and was like, we're not going to quite get away with the 10,000 words we thought we were going to run, but it'll be, like, more like 9,000 words. And, of course, I started to pout like a child. Um, but I just had to remind myself, like, this is going to be a successful piece either way, and I, I shouldn't be such an infant about this. But I also, but I do think that there's something about this that is true. That for me, like I look at writing as a job, and I feel good when I can successfully execute a piece that feels like a London Review piece, or a GQ piece, or an N plus one piece, or a Wired piece. Because to me, that like these. Especially when I'm working with an editor that I respect and I admire, I feel like this the piece is ultimately a, a collaboration and that it feels like work when you do something for a place that wants a particular kind of product and you successfully collaborate on creating that product. I am in the privileged position of knowing what both of you might do next. Uh I'm not sure you want to talk about it. Well, I want Gideon to talk about what he's doing next in terms of you're getting married, and your book is all about pilgrimage, and I wonder what the relationship is between your, if it's gone, the desire for pilgrimage, or if you see marriage as a pilgrimage. Like, what's the relationship between embarking on a marriage and this wandering? Are you going to be able to be away from home? Yeah, I mean, or do you much. even want to be away from yeah. home? Like, is pilgrimage going into some? Is 
is there an experience of pilgrimage? Well, I mean, one one of the challenges of working on this book was what does pilgrimage pilgrimage mean? I mean, like to me, it worked as a thing to write a book about because it was a pretty capacious metaphor. It encompassed a lot of things, but so to me, the task was all right. Here, here's this interesting metaphor that one can use to talk about one can you. We used to talk, talk, talk about a quest. One can use to talk about a, a, evasion. There are a lot of ways that one can use pilgrimage that are historically sound to talk about different things. So the question always was, how do you delimit this? How do you delimit pilgrimage? You know, like, there are Americans who write books about, like, my pilgrimage to visit all 32 Major League Baseball stadiums, which is fine, but I wanted to make it a little narrower than that. I didn't want it to make, you know, like, I'm constantly doing interviews with press people who are like, I just had, like, a pilgrimage of three different subways to come meet you here. <laughs> and, like, that's fine. Like, I get it. Like, that's, like, a good opening gambit. Well, the pilgrims are a very important symbol in America, you know, with yeah. the Mayflower right. and everything. They started here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because they hated it here. Um, uh, don't get me wrong. <laughs> so... So for me, the challenge of this book was, all right, let's find a way to narrow down this, this very broad concept of pilgrimage to talk about. Um, but then actually, when I, I have a scene with my grandfather in the third chapter of the book where he says, oh, well, like marriage is kind of like a pilgrimage, which was one of those things where you read in a book and you think, oh, nobody said that. Like, that just is a nice thing to say in a book. Although in this case, my grandfather actually did say all of those like nice book-ready things as people sometimes do He's in real life. He's a great character. Thank you. Yeah. And... Um, uh, but I, I guess I largely feel as though I've said what I have to say about pilgrimage as a topic, and I still travel all the time. I mean, I've, I've been gone from New York more than half the time in the last year, probably. But um, the woman I'm marrying is also gone a lot, so she can't complain when I'm gone. So I was just gone for – I was in San Francisco for all of January – and I, she wasn't thrilled about this because it was extremely cold in New York and I was in San Francisco where it was beautiful and sunny. Um, but now she's going to have to be in Europe for all of June, so she can't complain. It work- So, like, w- it works out. Right. I don't know if that answers Lots of opportunities to ni- write each other nice emails. Yeah, ex- well, she's, well, she's not much of an email- emailer, but... Yeah. <laughs> huh. huh. Well, perhaps it's time for us to... Uh, <laughs> On that note, perhaps it's time for us to open up uh, some questions from y'all. Um, There's a question. Going. Yeah, first question. Um, sorry, my question's for Sheila, really, and it's um, it might be a bit lengthy, but here goes. Um, one of the things I enjoyed most in How Should a Person Be were the um, sex scenes with Israel. And... Um, me too. They're very yeah, they're great. Um, they're very bold and they're very uh, forthright and uh, they're very frank. Um, I wondered how you felt about writing those scenes and publishing them in the context of a book that sort of sits somewhere between memoir and fiction, and if you'd feel differently if the book was sort of on either side of that fence. I think I must be completely crazy because I don't feel weird or bad or strange or embarrassed or anything about it at all. I think that I just I have this very good defense mechanism that I don't actually believe anybody's read the book yet. <laughs> and they never Even, will. But I mean last night you read some of the sex scenes to a crowd of hundreds of people in Notting Hill. Yeah, and it may be the reason I feel slightly nauseous today. <laughs> <laughs> um 
No, I Wait, just... but do you feel like when you get up and do that that you're daring yourself to do something that's uncomfortable for you? Um, here's what it is. I never used to read those passages out loud. And then I did an event with uh, this writer, Kenneth Goldsmith, in New York, and he's a wonderful performer and a very interesting experimental writer and poet and a lovely man. And he was like, you have to read that passage. And I saw that, right, there's a kind of showmanship or an entertainment kind of impulse to reading those passages where I hadn't clued into that before. So sometimes now I'll read them. And it's not because I so much want to read them. It's because I understand that there's... there's value in that in entertainment. But in terms of writing it, I didn't feel strange, and um, I don't feel strange. And I even feel like even if people um, do associate those sex scenes with me, like nobody knows me anyways, so they're just associating with an idea of me. I feel like there's a great distance between me and the me that people have in their heads. It doesn't feel like it touches me at all. And in some ways I feel in some ways like writing a book with the name Sheila as the character is a great shield. It's more of a shield than anything else because um, all that, any thinking that anybody might conceivably do about me is, um, I don't know, it's protected by, sort of the book stands in in the way of, uh, it's like a mask or something. Um, But you said last night that some of those sex scenes you wrote without ever thinking you'd put them into the book. Yeah, and there was a little bit of a question of like, how do these fit into the book? Um, is it a good idea to put this in the book? But it wasn't about, will I personally be embarrassed? It was like, aesthetic, will this work in the book? Um, well, like I've never you... felt embarrassed about anything I've published unless it was like a piece in a magazine where they make me say, oh, well, you know. Oh, so. I don't feel fit embarrassed. I, was, uh, I woke up this morning and I had an email from um, a friend of mine from London who's in New York right now. And sometimes she just forwards me Usually she just forwards me book reviews that I've already read. In this case, she was forwarding me a piece from The Atlantic magazine uh, under the title, Why Can't Women Write About Sex? And um, I sort of skimmed through it, and then I just hit uh, find and search for Hetty. And I was shocked that it didn't come up, and I figured it was because they couldn't have possibly have an argument with you um, there was this like fi- sorry go on and then one, one of the thoughts I had last night when you were reading that passage was I now that you've done that I'm aware of a lot of people doing that and doing it very well also maybe not as well as you are and people have done it more recently like Chris Krause um, but there's also been a lot of talk about how uh, the men who write about sex have, well, they're from the previous generation, like Updike and Mailer and uh, Roth. Roth. And there have been critics like Katie Royfe who have said that the, the men currently writing are afraid of that. And one thing about your book, Gideon, is there's no sex. There's no sex. Yeah. He was, he was Which, traveling with Tom Bissell. Were you completely <laughs> celibate when you were in Berlin? or? Uh... <laughs> That's not true. There's a little bit of... There's, there's sex referred to in the Berlin chapter. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, there's certainly no explicit sex. There's not as much banging into headboards and things like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that didn't seem to me to be part of the book. I guess the, I had... I never... I mean, it never even crossed my mind. I, I guess there's like a... Tom Bissell has a secret last chapter in one of his books where 
I shouldn't be talking about this. <laughs> um, where, but, I mean, I guess there were like some sex scenes written after the book that were then like never really going to be in the book like kind of extra epilogues Um, you sent me one yeah yeah I remember that yeah that Um, was too much information (laughs) I I really felt like whoa there was no there was no veil of fiction I knew it was in Montreal which is really close to where I live <laughs> but just your reaction. I, I just remember that email. I don't know. Have we have we passed really into it? And there was I, it wasn't I, the kind of sex that I could relate to or something. Huh. I yeah. I didn't think we'd end up talking about this. Um, I completely well, just remembered. The, right I, now. The, the the honest answer is that I never thought that um, it never struck me as something that was necessary in the book. Okay, I don't necessarily. I don't recommend this piece in the Atlantic. Next <laughs> question. At the very back. The microphone, the, the shoddy microphone has to go there. To what degree were you spiritually uplifted by the experience of Ukraine? <laughs> what was the question? To what degree were you spiritually uplifted? To what degree spiritually were you spiritually uplifted by the experience in Ukraine? I, um, actually, to me, there was uh, almost no spiritual... I mean, I'm not sure what the word spiritual means, but there was no spiritual content of the trip in, the, in Ukraine. I mean, to me, the trip in Ukraine was pretty purely a pretext to have a series of conversations with my dad that I'd never been able to have before and to ask him some questions about how his story over the years had, had changed. Um, but it was not... Like, in a way, the whole point of that chapter is that my brother and my dad and I feel completely alienated from what's going on around us. Um, whereas in the other chapters, there would be an expectation of alienation because for, I was on this Catholic pilgrimage or I was in Japan, rural Japan with a bunch of um, Buddhists. Whereas this is the chapter where there might be some expectation of having an identification because we're all Jewish. But we looked at these Hasids and thought, like, our lives have nothing to do with theirs. And it was the fact of the alienation from what was going on around us that allowed us to have these conversations because it felt like we were circling the wagons. Um, It felt like we had to stake out a private space amidst the circus that was going on around us, and that was what allowed us to to talk this way. We could have, I mean, there's no way we could have had this conversation in, you know, Las Vegas or something. Um, This was... Like it, this was all despite the circumstances, not because of them. Any other questions? Oh, Anna Marie. Um, but walking, and I remember Sheila in your book, people, the characters walk quite a bit around town as well, right? And I guess pilgrimage is all about walking, and. I guess we all know that overused Kierkegaard uh, quote of like, there's nothing that a long walk can cure or something. So I'm just, yeah, I'm curious about walking and a cure or like finding a solution to your uh, problems and clarity and what you think about walking and your diff- uh, separate books and projects. Hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of walking and strolling, I guess. It's just... I don't know. I've never. I don't have anything really special to say about that. It's. It's. Well, I thought the friendship, for example, that was like formed very much over walking. I thought like I could really relate to that because I feel like I'm like the phrase like walking. It's simply 
talk. It's easier to talk when you're walking. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that like having a conversation with a friend on a walk is always going to be a better conversation than having a conversation with a friend in a bar. Um, but we've gotten lazier over the years, so <laughs> they're all in bars. I don't know. I always think about that Rebecca Solnit book, Walking, when I think about walking. I hate that book. You hate it? Yeah. Why? I think that book is so pretentious. I think it's, it's so, so win. No, it's not good. Nobody has ever actually finished that book. If you like, people will praise that book, and then you're like, "Oh yeah, you like that book? Did you finish it?" And people are like, "Nah." I you don't need to finish it. every book. Yeah, but that book, people put it down. People, Rebecca Solnit. Did you get the point? I know? shouldn't be saying this in the LRB bookshop, but I think Rebecca Solnit is somebody that like people flatter themselves by thinking that they should read and admire her when like there's not a lot of. It's pretty empty to me. But even so, like, even if you don't finish the book. Reading half of the book makes you think about walking in a different way. All right, tell me, how did, Re- how did Rebecca Solnit make you think about walking in a different way? I think it just made me think about walking. Like, I'd never thought about walking as a subject to think about. Like, I just walked, and now I was like, oh, right, walking, that's a thing. That's a particular thing, too, that has its own, you know... I don't know, because when you read a book, suddenly it becomes part of your own intelligence. You don't remember anymore what you knew before the book. It just becomes part of your brain. So I don't know what I knew before the book, but I remember, like, yeah, that is... Yeah, that book had a good title and a good PR campaign, but... um, (laughs) My... Have you read it, Christian? I woke up last week in a terrible mood. And I had, but I had the day off, and uh, I just thought, what would Auden do? So I walked down to the Thames and took a long walk, and, and immediately was in a better mood. And um, I like Rebecca's writing a lot. I work with her sometimes, and uh, and um, I, I haven't read that book or even picked it up and not finished reading it. But uh, do you, another book I like a lot is uh, written by someone I walk with is. Um, Ten Walks and Two Talks by Andy Fitch and oh, John yeah. Cotner. Sure. Um, but, you know, I, I actually think talking in bars and talking on walks are both ideal. Yeah, they're but both good. I don't me know why. So that's trying to answer a question. We, we need to go for a walk someday, so that's our next hang. Uh, next question. Um, I'll, well, I'll, I'll answer that really quickly because oh, I do have sort of an answer to that, yeah. which is that I th- I actually think that one of the nice things about walking is that it gives you some sense of forward motion. I mean, a completely arbitrary sense of forward motion, but it relieves the pressure on other things to have forward motion. The walking itself, like the sheer physical activity, can bear the burden of progress. And it, like you, you don't have to push too hard on what that concept of progress means. Whereas then, like it frees up other things to have like non-progressive structures to them. So you that like once that idea from Rebecca's book. No, <laughs> well, I, I didn't even finish Rebecca's book. I mean, um, it, uh, something you said earlier, Gideon, uh, about Berlin is that you were there waiting for material to emerge, which is to say. <laughs> Events to happen that might have a, that might lend themselves to some kind of dramatic structure, right? And perhaps your book was born out of imposing a a form on events or a container that might in form of pilgrimage. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, I mean, like. To me, like the the Berlin chapter, like there are a lot of things going on. There are art openings, and there, like you know, there's there's sex theoretically. Um, but the point of the chapter is that it's supposed to feel sort of static. Whereas then, like nothing is really happening in uh, like the Camino chapter, but it's it's more 
the whole thing is more dynamic despite the fact that nothing's happening because there's this motion going on. Yeah. Next one. Oh. Hi. It's a, it's a sort of a follow-up to the last question in that, in that for both of you, were you influenced by a particular book or a particular writer when you began to think about these two books in a positive way? One book that comes to mind for me, I was just mentioning Kenneth Goldsmith earlier in the night. He wrote a book called Soliloquy, which is... Has anybody here read that book? So I have. So I'll describe it for the rest of you. Um, it's, um, it, I think it was in the 90s or something. He wore a, um, a Walkman, uh, but the headphones that he had around his neck were rigged up to record him. So they... And you know, so he recorded himself for a whole entire week, just like everything from the moment he woke up to the moment he went to sleep. And then he transcribed everything that he said. And the book is in seven chapters, and each chapter is just his words. And it's there's no stage directions, there's nobody else's words, and it's thick and it's the most boring book like you could ever. No one has read. No one has finished yeah. that book. Um, well, he also states so that his books are not meant, meant to, to be read. read. I mean, it's an it's an art experiment. Like it's a well, didn't wasn't piece. when when that book came out? Didn't he have a gallery show where the entire text of the book was on the walls of the gallery? It's I possible. believe I've read about that. Yes. Yeah, and you just see how stupid we are and how dumb we sound and it's so lovely and it's so human and it makes you feel so relaxed and I don't know I, that's one of the books Kenny's that for other sure. books include a, a book that's an entirely transcription of weather reports for a certain time and period. another one is like the New York Times one yeah, day every one day, single word isn't it September 10th 2001 this is I my favorite so. though the other ones I, yeah. I'm not as into yeah um, I mean, but that that book is really like a work of art. I don't know. Now, the would how now? There's a lot of transcription in how should a person be. Um, I I remember because you were kind of embarking on your transcription project right when we were first becoming friends or correspondents or whatever we were at first, and um, and. I was disturbed a little bit because I knew about all these transcription things happening with Kenny and things, but I knew your previous work and I knew that you had, like, I considered you a real prose stylist. And I said, oh, no, I'm interested in these transcription people, but I wouldn't want a great prose stylist <laughs> to give that up, to go over to that camp. But it turns out in How Should a Person Be, you can do both. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> I didn't think that's where it was going to end. No, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but um, was it was transcribing start, something you started doing, and then you f then you found because you quickly sort of found those guys and 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 started this appearing in magazines with them. I guess. Yeah. But I had this idea when I was starting. How should a person be? One of my first ideas about it was that I didn't want to think about style, and I didn't want to think about the sentences, and I didn't want to. Um, <laughs> Because you can only pay attention, so sort of like whenever you're writing a book, like one thing is the most important thing. You can pay attention to everything, but one thing is at the peak and or at the base, however you want to look at it. And for me, it was like if you think about style, and which I had for most of for the other books that I've written before, the two books I've written before, 
the other concerns are less important. So if I want to not think about style, then I could think about other things more. So I thought about meaning more. I thought about why am I writing this book much more than I had with Tickner or the Middle Stories because I was thinking about mm. the sentences so much. And I was like, why are you thinking so much about sentences? You know, the, the only So, yeah, that was like... That was one of the first decisions. All right, next question. Maybe the last question. Last uh, question? What's our time like? One or two more? Let's say two more. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the little debate about walking um, made me want to ask a question about your recent or your latest work, the short essay. A wonderful little book, which is really about Berlin, only yeah. Berlin, although there's some references to other places. What I liked about it was its incredible accuracy and consistency with almost every other account that the friends or people who have lived in Berlin that I've met recently all talks about. So I just thought it's an amazing consistency about this very complex city. And I think you gave some explanations for why. That may be the case in a way that I think is very difficult for even uh, a proverbial place like Paris in the 20s or you know uh, New York in a certain time could be as easily captured in a consistent way by a lot of different observers and residents and writers. So the question I was going to ask you is, um, in your short essay about Berlin, where, as I said, you know, you, I thought you were very incredibly uh, uh, um, observant about all these things that everyone else saw. You also describe through your various uh, descriptions of the various drafts of your Berlin chapter in your in your book, how you came to have a different attitude about that experience. You know, one was okay, well, positive, negative, etc., uh, or you know, kind of almost a Hegelian dialectic. Do you think that is actually reflective of? Sorry just your own evolving attitude towards the place or do you think a place like Berlin in fact creates that kind of multiplicity um, of responses even if the actual day-to-day ex- existence is actually incredibly consistent because of its economic imperatives thank you um, well that's a very flattering thing to say thank you for all that uh, I think it's just youth that provides those that multiplicity that this was not just writing about Berlin it was about writing about Berlin when I was in my 20s and that Berlin when I was there seemed to have like the whole place seemed to operate as this like gigantic metaphor for youth and so to me when I had finished the the, the only reason I wrote more about Berlin I mean partially because I had this friend in Berlin who asked me if I would write something for her series and she said, do you feel like there's anything that you didn't get to in your book? And I thought, like, you know, I actually feel like I've, I had no urge to write more about the Camino. I had no urge to write more about Japan or my dad. But that the one thing that when I went back to my book, I thought, like, there are things here that are missing or there are things here that I feel differently about now or that I felt consistently differently about over time. It was the Berlin chapter. And I said, do you mind if I write a kind of study of that Berlin chapter and of my changing opinion about Berlin? Because as you mentioned, when I first wrote about Berlin, it was right when I had left, when I thought I would left for good, although I ended up back there. Um, and I was very bitter about Berlin. And the, the, the tone of that chapter was a tone of great disillusionment. And then I, wrote, I rewrote that chapter 
I don't know, a year later, and I'd been gone from Berlin for a while, and I all of a sudden felt very nostalgic for the, like, kind of youth that I experienced there. And that chapter was a much warmer thing. And it was, like, if the first chapter was, like, we were all stupid for having bought into the mythos of Berlin and moved there, the second chapter was, like, you guys were all stupid for never having moved to Berlin. And I felt like both of these are wrong, and that and then when I wrote the third version, it was a much more measured thing, somewhere between like some the bitterness I'd felt upon leaving and the nostalgia I'd felt upon being gone for a while. And and that was why I felt like I needed to write about it again. Was that it was my your, I th- I mean I suspect one's feelings about one's youth because one is projecting so much backwards onto the experience of one's youth, like that is the thing that's gonna change the most. Sure, one last more. one. Um, I just wanted to ask about, you said that you wrote an initial email to your friends when you were on the pilgrimage and you got a reply from your friend Ralph saying, like, this is a book. And I just was curious about what other sort of responses you got. Um, I got a lot of responses. You know, I mean, I got responses from my mom saying, I'm glad you're okay. Um... <laughs> Um, I got from Japan. I got responses that were like, "I'm really glad you're okay." Um, I got responses. Very dangerous place. <laughs> well, I mean, especially after I sent this email about how like it was freezing cold and I had to break into this temple yeah, and sleep did, on this wood get floor. Out of the temple, yeah, yeah. yeah. After that, it's my a great passage. Thank you. Um, I got responses from people being like, "I wish I were there with you." I got responses being like. I'm so glad I'm not there with you. Um, I got a whole range of stuff, and that was it was it was fun to watch all of those things. It gave me like a really live sense of who, of you know, like what constitutes an audience beyond like an kind of an averaged out like mean focus group. It was individuals I could imagine very vividly. And being able to think about and process their reactions in real time was just an interesting kind of feedback. Were those people the audience for your book when you were putting your book together? Were you thinking the same way you were writing your emails, this book is for them? Well, I'm not sure that there was ever a this book is for anyone. It was just, um, yeah, I mean, you try to write for the smartest, most interesting people that you know. And I guess writing those emails was one experience in, like, nakedly sending things out to the smartest, most interesting people you know and seeing what they had to say, uh, especially when they didn't feel like they had to politely comment on a draft you were sending them, when they could react um, in an earthier way to just an email. Um, but I'm not... I mean, by the time... Uh, this book got re- rewritten so many times that I got so far past what those original drafts were that I'm not sure by the end I was thinking about an audience at all. Well, you've been a great audience. Thank you for coming. And uh, we'll be sticking around here. Uh, These guys will sign books. um, And uh, thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.